You want to leave and have hope. You want to leave and have answers. You want to leave and deal with your relationship issues. You want to leave and deal with your thought process. You want answers. You want hope. You want meaning. You will find that in Genesis. When you get back to that basic, essential, and kind of the duh moment reality that we all know, right? Nothing is impossible. Why? Because he spoke the world into existence. What else is there? Welcome back to the Dwelling Richly Study. Join us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, and we're going to take a look back over lesson 2 and the absolutely profound and yet simple truth that in the beginning, God, and what that reality means in our life today. And all right, let's go ahead and get into our teaching time and back into the Word. So we open up with the Word, Uh, in the beginning God right and that's the beginning of everything God created the heavens and the earth and we talked about last time this what this means in Hebrew now the earth was without shape and empty and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep but the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water and as we move through these passages I've asked you to key in in all of Genesis to really pay close attention to the names of God Look for that. A way to make that easier for yourself is to get a Bible. The Names of God Bible is a great one for that. You can actually just get it on um, Bible Gateway. And so if you, don't, if you can't buy it, um, just go on BibleGateway.com and open up that version and use the Names of God in parallel with when you're looking at your ESV or your King James or whichever version you're using with your study. Um, but use the Names of God Bible. It'll be very illuminating for you because it literally says the name of God. Normally, you, you would see God, it'll say God. Uh, or sometimes if it's all caps Lord, L-O-R-D, uh, you'll see that, uh, the Spirit of God. But being able to see the actual name of God will really enrich your study. Um, so Genesis opens with the greatest reality. There's a personal God who created everything. And I think for those of us, especially if you were raised in the church or you have walked with God, um, you have a heart for God already, you've given your life to him, that feels like kind of a duh comment, right? Genesis opens with the greatest reality. There's a personal God who created everything because you have that personal relationship. But we need to be mindful of the reality that most people don't have that mindset. There's, There's no sense of that in their heart. And so as we're reading, I've asked you to be aware of the cultural context that Genesis was written in with the ancient Near East and thousands of years ago and who they were. I'd also like you to be thinking about your fellow citizens in the world right now and that you're churched and you're in this study and you're in God's word, but millions, thousands, and even close friends and family members in your life aren't at all. And so this is a distant truth for them. And it's, important, it's an important thing for you to be able to comprehend so that we can f- fulfill our calling of the Great Commission and be able to answer why we have the joy that we have, which is what it says in Peter. And so for you to be here, God bless you. It's awesome, proud of you for investing your time in this study and being here for teaching. Um, but keep that always in mind, that you are learning things that are gonna bless others and that you take for granted this simple truth. Um, so in, in keeping with that, that's that simple truth uh, about God and who he is and his names of God. You can see here on this slide, I've written out for the Hebrew, Bereshit um, bara Elohim et. And then I've also written um, Elohim Ruach, which is the spirit of God. And you can see that in blue underneath there. And when you're reading Genesis as a good Christian, 
<laughs> maybe someone who's raised in the church, um, you're seeing with this great context that what you have. You have the New Testament in mind. You have your good teaching from church. Your good teaching from Bible studies, right? You've read the end. You know how it all ends, right? And so when you read an opening line like this and all throughout Genesis, when you think of God, you're thinking of the, the Trinity, aren't you? You're thinking of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You know that, right? And so when you look at verses like this, and even later on when we see let us make man in our image and things like that, you know you're thinking Trinity. And, uh, and yet we don't see that right here in these opening two verses. Or do we? Hmm. They're there. And you can clearly see Elohim, God, and you can clearly see the Spirit of God. But it's not until you look at the Hebrew that you see the third person of the Trinity. And I want to show you how to find that today. All right. I've highlighted these in blue, and I'll do the same as we continue on in the next slide. In the beginning, God, and I pointed it down so you can see the Hebrew, Elohim, that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water, Elohim Ruach. And I pointed in blue to this other word. And in your lesson, if you did it, hopefully you did that part where you, sometimes you get excited, you do the first day and then you maybe run out of steam after that, but hopefully you did the whole thing. But on that first day where you were actually working on it, uh, I had you write out that sentence and then I, I wrote the transliteration for you and had you, um, you know, read that and then I wrote e what each word meant and that was the one word that is, un it's literally untranslatable. If you go look it up in a concordance, it'll say, it's, this is an untranslatable word. It doesn't, there's no correspondence in English to this word, you pronounce it et. And the letters that are in that are the letters alpha, or um, aleph, I said alpha, that's the Greek. Um, it's aleph, a, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the next letter is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, tav. So aleph, tav, the first letter and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which would correspond in our English A to Z, which would correspond in Greek alpha, omega, Waiting for a couple of light bulbs, which would correspond in Greek to the Alpha Omega. And who is the Alpha and the Omega? There's a Sunday school answer I'm looking for. It's a way of saying Alpha Omega, A to Z, Aleph, uh, Tav. It's a way of saying like soup to nuts, beginning to end. Everything's right there. So Jesus is in the beginning. We have God, Elohim. We have the Spirit of God, the Ruach, the wind, the Spirit. And we do have Jesus, the olive, with the red uh, highlighting there, uh, and the top. He's in the beginning. The untranslatable word was at the beginning with God. And we see that because God could have thought the world into existence. But God did what? He spoke. And God used the word. And it turns out that that the very word is so important. And <laughs> throughout time, as we've developed our understanding of how the world actually works, and we're going to talk about this more in a minute, science has given us an amazing amount of information that only always goes back to confirm the, the truth that we all know from reading God's word. And we understand spiritually by faith, right? But science continues to confirm and confirm and confirm. For example, and we'll just go with some super recent discoveries. How many of you are, are familiar with the Human Genome Project that they've mapped? And they have uh, your entire genome mapped. They know all the sequencing now of, uh, of your, your, 
your DNA. All your billions of cells, they've actually been able to map the DNA down to the actual DNA level. And they know that all the sequences in your DNA are basically, <laughs> you ready? Just hold your head firmly down to your shoulders. Here we go. The sequencing of your DNA is actually a big long word. You were created. You were spoken into existence at the beginning and imprinted on you at the DNA level, which now science now confirms is the word. You are literally the embodiment of the spoken word of God. And science just confirmed what we all already know. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. And by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, not God's thought, but God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. In other words, the universe didn't always exist, which is what secular teaching has done for years, and philosophical teaching has said forever, that it, the universe is just eternal. No, it was spoken into existence. And worthy are you, Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things by your will. They exist and came to be. And Nehemiah 6.9.6, 6, you alone are the Lord. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their host. It's an important part too. The earth and all that is on it. The seas and all that is in them. You give life to all things and the host of heaven worships you. Right? All right. So we have this truth, this reality that we know by faith because we know that it's impossible to please God without faith. And we have that. And remember, God could have thought the world into existence, and he didn't. And what do I always ask you to think as you're doing your study? It didn't have to be this way. Why is it this way? Of all the possible ways it could have been, why is it this way? God could have done anything, but he spoke. We're going to talk about, again, more a little bit about that. But as we come to Genesis, and I've said this many times with our 21st century American point of view, you can't escape that. There's no way to escape you bringing that point of view to Genesis. And if you think about it, Moses brought his point of view. He couldn't escape his culture. He couldn't escape being a guy. <laughs> he, he couldn't escape anything. He was just who he was. God used him and revealed his truth to him. right? And so we can't ditch our point of view. We bring it. We let God use that. But we try to learn and embrace like who was the original audience that's a very important part of learning to be a good student of the word right it's important to grasp but if god had moses record an account of creation that made scientific sense which is what we wanted to do if god had him make scientific sense to 21st century people it would have been gibberish to ancient near eastern people they would not have understand the science that we have and of course, why not just record creation account so that our future cousins, 4,000 years into our future, oh Lord, please don't take 4,000 more years. <laughs> just please don't, but it's on you. Okay, uh, Maranatha, in other words. Um, but our future cousins, 4,000 years from today, could understand it, it would be gibberish to us because we'd be the ancients, yeah. right? 
Okay. So you understand the world because you learned in second grade or maybe in preschool if you were homeschooled. Uh, <laughs> you learned in second grade about a thing called gravity, right? And because of telescopes, you saw the distant, massive creation of God, the sun. You actually see photos of the sun, photos of actual planets, not just drawings, right? You can see that through those telescopes. And through a microscope, you can see distant and minuscule creations, right, in the cell. You have a scientific understanding of the world, even if you don't really understand it all, right? And we don't. So we come to Genesis and we, we kind of want that. We want the science. How did this happen? How did you do that? And I, I would suggest to you, had God uh, not said, and it was so, had he had hands and made it like that, maybe we'd get more. But I believe that he spoke it into existence and left that part out uh, for that very reason of communication, because it would have been gibberish to ancients, it would have been gibberish to 4,000 years ahead of us, and it, it, it's already difficult for us, and we put our science into it. They put their worldview and their understanding into it, and 4,000 years from now, they'll do the same. So God speaks and communicates to us in a way that they can understand, and we all for all time can understand. And let's keep in mind that Genesis was written uh, not in isolation, it was, it was written during a time when creation myths, creation accounts, uh, were already prevalent. Genesis isn't even the first one. The story of, of creation in the Genesis account isn't the first creation account. And when I first learned that, this is years ago in college, I, when I heard that, I thought, that can't be true. We had to be the first one. We had to be the first. Wow, how, the other people had creation stories? I didn't even know that. And sure they did. Babylonians did. The Egyptians did. Why? Because everybody wants to come up with a reason why we're here. How did this all came to be? And like I said last time, why is there something rather than nothing? Right? And so the creation accounts get started and the Babylonians came up with their stories and the Egyptians uh, came up with their stories. All of the people groups that predate Moses' time, they had their, their stories. And so... Uh, I want to go into a little bit of that because understanding the context of what Genesis was written is going to have to include that it was written during a time when creation stories already existed. People were already postulating about how this all came to be. And so Genesis gets brought in, and it is, was not written as a polemic. I'll describe that word in a minute. It was not written as a polemic, but it ends up becoming a polemic. Uh, a polemic is basically an argument to a point. So you put the point out there, and then you're arguing about that point. You're saying, um, what I have to say is speaking to this issue. Uh, it, let's imagine the issue is a poll, P-O-L-E, to help you remember that a polemic is speaking to that issue. I'm addressing that. So Genesis wasn't necessarily written in, with that in mind, but it becomes a polemic when you read it in context of uh, ancient Near Eastern creation stories, right? And what did I tell you the difference in our vocabulary last time? That we're going to use the word account, not a story, because we, this isn't a story. This is a, an account, like a journalistic account in a sense. Uh, but those were gonna myth and, and story, and, and we understand, right, because of faith, we know why. But Babylonian and Egyptian creation stories that predate Genesis have been discovered, 
And they suggest then that Genesis is actually written to, in part as a response to that polytheism, all right? It was countering a culture in which creation was worshipped, instead of the creator, and it was also birthed in violence. The creation stories that come out of Babylonian and Egyptian and other um, writings are all have to do some kind of violent act takes place, a war, a battle takes place. Uh, so in the Babylonian creation story, and here's a picture of um, one of their reliefs, um, the Babylonian creation story is called Enuma Elish, Enuma Elish. And uh, fascinating, Google it. Uh, if you're squeamish, don't look up the visual images of it. I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, but the Enuma Elish is the story of the storm god Marduk, and he forms the heavens and earth with the body of the goddess Tiamat that he just defeated in battle. All right? And so he actually, in this account, he rips her apart, and from there, the expanse, the sky. And, because that, that's how the, the ancients would have viewed things. They know the earth. They can walk around on the earth. They see the sea, which is a big, deep, dark, scary mystery. So that's down there under the earth somehow. And then they can look up at the sky and see these lights and things up there. It, it, it's like this dome. So Marduk defeats Tiamat and rips her open, and in this big, violent um, battle... Um, and he creates humans out of the blood of another violent occurrence, Tiamat's lover. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a nice Valentine's Day. So <laughs> violent and scary and creepy and vanquishing and defeating and, and blood and gore and ripping asunder. Like I said, don't, don't do the visual. Just don't do the Google images. Just do the, the word part of it. And so we see Genesis, God creates nothing at all like that. And God said. Do you see the difference? Marduk and Tiamat and ripping apart. And the Egyptians have the same, very violent, everything's poor. No. Elohim said, and it was so. And even as you were doing that opening day and the earth was formless and void, there's no violence there. The tohu wabohu, the wild and waste, the tohu wabohu in the Hebrew means just wild and waste. It doesn't mean big and scary and bloody and battles. And God said, and he speaks it into existence. And God of Genesis creates human in a peaceful manner. And he gives them his own image and he delegates them to a high task, a high calling of ruling the earth as his representatives. And there's no enslavement of mankind to serve the gods and make and produce food for us. The God of creation, he produced food for us. We don't produce for him. He produced for us. See, it stands in opposition to the myths of the time. And to this day, this word of God continues to stand in opposition to our culture and what our culture wants to say is true. And so Genesis reveals to us God's distinct character, his creative activity, in part by countering the stories that already existed in people's minds at the time. And God, remember, God chose to reveal himself to a particular people with a particular conception of the world 
And in the biblical text, he was not interested in correcting any pre-scientific ideas. There's, there's no, and this is how I did it. You know, Genesis 1, part 1a. You know, a little outline off to the side. Oh, by the way, let me tell you about cells. Let me tell you about how I, you know, the sun isn't just a light thing up there. It's a ball of gas. It makes, no, we get none of that. So, for example, they may have understood the waters of the heaven, like I said, to be held back by some kind of a dome, firmament that's described, right, in Genesis 1, 6. The stars, possibly even the moon up there, believed to be embedded up into that dome. The earth was thought to be flat. There were flat earthers back then, too, right? And there was a firmament above and, a, and down below. So does the fact that scripture uses pre-scientific ways of describing the world invalidate its message? No, no. Christians have noted forever that God revealed himself to the biblical writers in a way that they can understand. This is a principle we call accommodation. Accommodation. You use it every day. Accommodation. You use it with your children. You use it with your husband, probably. You use it with anyone you're trying to communicate. You accommodate where they're coming from so that they can understand you. So when we talk to a little baby, we don't, we don't, we don't bring out the Bible and, and read it from the ESV or, or the King James. Goo goo gaga, you know, little wordings for them. We talk like that. John Calvin said it like this. For who even of slight intelligence does not understand, as nurses commonly do with infants, God won't in a measure to a lisp in speaking to us, right? In other words, God's speaking to us like goo goo gaga a little bit. Not, not because we're dumb. Thus, such forms of speaking do not so much express clearly what God is like as uh, accommodating the knowledge of him to our slight capacity. To do this, he must descend far beneath his loftiness. In other words, he condescends to us. We would never grasp God. He talks with a lisp in a sense, is what Calvin is saying, to get us to understand what he's doing. So are the days of Genesis 1 meant to be understood as regular 24-hour days? What's the science there? Seven-day week? Millions of years? Genesis? Turns out, doesn't say. Doesn't say. Seven-day week is meant to be understood as a regular human work week. We know that because we see that pattern. <coughs> But it doesn't automatically follow, then, that Genesis 1 is revealing scientific information about the chronology of natural history. Not necessarily. We should do our due diligence to understand that. There's no reason why. But frequent references to this ancient cosmology in Genesis 1, we see a lot of similarities to the Babylonian Enumel Elish and the Egyptian myths. They indicate that God did not choose to reveal modern scientific information to those ancient Hebrews, not in Genesis 1. I'm going to read you a bit longer than I would normally read because it's just so well written and I love his wording and I didn't want to paraphrase it and ruin it. Uh, uh, this is an author, his name is John Walton. And like many authors who write wonderfully and amazing, scientifically deep and just theologically sound works, I find myself just enchanted by how he communicates and so he this is how he describes it and I, in terms of the opening of genesis and understanding it again a little bit longer quote that i would normally share i think you'll enjoy it as well imagine that a play came into town that you wanted to see you purchased tickets but on the evening of the play you encountered numerous difficulties the weather was bad the traffic snarled streets were closed for construction and no parking spot was available consequently you walked into the theater half an hour late intermission soon came and you turned to the person seated next to you and asked 
How did the play begin? How did the play begin? The friendly woman is glad to answer your question. Oh, this play was written in the early 20th century and was a Pulitzer Prize nominee. <laughs> you interrupt her to say, okay, that's not what you were asking. She replies that no one could have a play without a script, so it's a very logical answer. And you agree, but prompt her again with your question, to which she patiently replies, okay. Well, the stage was constructed by the Marshall Construction Company, which specializes in, and again, you interrupt her and tell her, that's not what you want to know. <laughs> She's beginning to get a little irritable and replies, well, how could you have a play without a stage? True enough, you agree. But once again, you indicate that is not what you're asking. With a sigh, she tries again. The set was designed for this stage by the Johnson and Phillip Company that specializes in black box theater design, and they, and you cut her off mid-sentence. No, that's not what I'm interested in. She has now been frustrated into silence, but the gentleman sitting on the other side of you attempts to step in to help. Well, this particular production began when the cast was chosen by the Smith & Rogers Casting Agency. They particularly sought out beginning actors who, no, 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 none of this is what I'm asking. Please tell me what happened when the curtains opened. Oh, they reply. Why didn't you say so? And we can see the problem. Each of the answers, script, stage, set, cast, action, is a correct answer to the question, how did the play begin? It is true, there could not be a play without any of those elements. Nevertheless, there was a certain type of information that we were looking for. We encountered the same sort of problem when we think about how the world began. Not everyone will be interested in the same part of the story, and not every culture will be asking the same questions. In our scientific world, we are most interested in the stage part of the story. Science can give us almost endless details about the construction of the stage, that is, our universe, our world, nebulae, quarks, as well as humanity, our bodies, fossil records, the bacteria, but this is not only way to answer the question. The Israelites, in their ancient world context, realized there was a stage, but they had little means or interest in generating the stage part of the story. They were interested more in the set, the ordering of all the backdrops, the furniture and the architecture on the stage with the purposes of the play in mind. They answered the question, how did the world begin, by talking about God's setting the stage more than his building of the stage, though of course he did that too. They were also interested in the script, God said, and in the cast, God and his people he created. But ordering the set was of primary interest, right? So John Walton, now, I'll give you the name of the book uh, at the end. But John Walton just makes a fabulous point and helps us to really keep this in mind as we're reading Genesis. We want the science. Tell me I'm right. <laughs> my point of view wins, right? I know it. We got the science behind my side, right? So with that in mind, let's be careful not to approach Genesis with the expectation that it is given to us to explain the science of how. Genesis is not meant to explain things in scientific terms as much as we would like to know exactly how God said and there was. Genesis is here to point us to a reality that there is a God and he did bring about all that we know. We can accept this and we can still enjoy the science and the learning and the trying to understand and to grasp. Did he do it in six natural 24-hour days? But can we come to a different understandings? of how, in terms of the method and timing, can we do that? Sure. 
Is it possible for people to hold to the Bible to be the true, inspired, holy, inerrant word of God and still come to different interpretations on how the world came to be, materialistically speaking? In other words, we can agree that God created and we can still grasp how he created. So, in fact, Christians have been doing that all along. On this um, summary here, I'm going to show you a chart in just a minute, but I want us to ask, what kind of creation account is this? Genesis isn't a scientific text explaining. It's Genesis identity answering questions of who created this and who am I in the creation. Um, this chart here, which might be a little hard for you to see, and I will um, let you, uh, the slides are up on the website, so you can get that later. But the center under the blue header there are the Christian views, the dominant Christian views, young earth, old earth, and theistic evolution, and on flanking on the right and left are philosophical naturalism and scientific view. All right? Um, so I would also encourage you, if those of you who are interested more in the science, this is a fabulous book and a wonderful series of books called Counterpoints, and it's called Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design, and it has four leading scientist theologians who uh, love Jesus and have a high regard for the word. So I would not have picked a Christian who did not have a high regard for the word of God and did not believe in, in the fundamental truths of Christianity. So uh, these four people do. Uh, probably the first guy you might be familiar with his name, his name is Ken Ham. Ken Ham. Uh, so Ken Ham is the Answers in Genesis website, uh, the Creation Museum, Ark Encounter, things like that. Uh, he's the young earth um, creationism view. Um, then we have um, Hugh Ross, who is fabulous. Also, you can listen to him. His YouTube videos are fabulous. He's, got, he's done a lot of work near, in local churches nearby. You may have even heard him speak. Um, he would represent the old earth progressive creation view. Fascinating. He is, his website is Reasons to Believe. And again, I have all of this information on the book. You're welcome to come up and take a look at that afterwards. Um, then we have a Biologos organization that believes that God used evolution to create his creation. And again, high view of scripture, love Jesus, love the word, and they do believe that God used the evolutionary process to create. And her name is Deborah Harzma. And then we have Stephen C. Meyer, and he's from the Discovery Institute, also excellent. And you may have heard of intelligent design as a concept. And a lot of people are involved in that and trying to get that into public schools, which acknowledges God as uh, the creator. And his name is Stephen C. Meyer, and again, he's with the Discovery Institute. So I do encourage you, if you want to know more of this science, it's exciting, it's challenging. You'll read the first one and go, I totally believe all of that. That was perfectly said. And then you'll read the next one and go, well, that's pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> so four views, counterpoints. They have an outstanding series. Uh, love what they put out and it's just very enlightening and encouraging to read. So I'm going to leave this up here. You guys can come take a look at that later. Uh, here's a picture of it. And then here is um, four other, three other resources. All These are my favorite Johns, as it were. Uh, John Lennox, Seven Days That Divide the World. Go get it now. Order on Google, uh, Amazon. Have it delivered by drone to your house. So it's waiting for you when you arrive home. Tonight, read it, love it, embrace it. John Lennox, amazing. And if you listen to him speak, uh, he's got an adorable British accent, which you just can't get enough of. He's just fabulous. And he's very jolly looking. He's just like your favorite grandpa. You're going to love him. Seven Days That Divide the World, amazing. Have extremely encouraged and challenged my thought process as I've studied and prepared this, uh, these lessons for you. Uh, see John Collins, another John. Uh, his, his book is Reading Genesis Well, again, available on Amazon. 
outstanding. I love him because I, I actually found out about him because John Lennox quotes him so much. <laughs> so he's great. And then the third John uh, is John Walton. I, that's who I quoted, the play uh, illustration from the beginning. Lost World of Genesis 1. I um, love his stuff too. Uh, John Lennox in Seven Days That Divide the World uh, calls him out a lot. Like, you don't agree on anything. <laughs> it's hysterical. Except they love Jesus. And uh, <laughs> they love God's word. And they're both amazing. And I, I just so enjoy, um, I've so enjoyed learning. Oh, let me get that slide back up there for you. Um, so learn, enjoy. And as I mentioned to you in our previous study, my role in this Bible study is as teacher, pastor, not as um uh, PhD, scientist, seminary professor. I'm going to give you what I'm learning, but I'm, I'm not, um, my role is, is not as a science. We're not going to do a science -y, uh, class here, but I, I mean, I dig and love the science stuff too. All right. So the essential point is summed up of Genesis in the opening chapter. The essential point is right there. And if you have been paying attention as you go through your lessons, you will hear me, hopefully not to your annoyance, but to your delight, <laughs> ask you, to underline the verbs. How many times do I say, underline the verbs, underline the verbs, get those verbs. You feel like you're in seventh grade doing diagramming sentences. Verbs, 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 and more verbs. <laughs> Here we go. But those, are, those verbs are the ones that illustrate the point of Genesis, and they're right there at the beginning. Here we go. We're going to go through all of them. Um, so God created, bara. Only he can create. That word bara in Hebrew is only always associated with God. He creates. Number two, God said. Number three, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run right through these pretty quickly. God said, God called, God made, God placed, God saw, God blessed, and God declared. It is good. Um, technically, also, uh, God rested, so we can add that in there as well. Um, actually, there's two. I ended up editing this, and I, I forgot to edit it on the PowerPoint. Uh, God separated, and that's an important point. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and then, of course, God rested. It brings our sum total to 10 of all the verbs. Um, and uh, after the previous message I went back through and recounted and like oh I left out separated let's add that in all right so separated and then finally rested when I came up with the number of 10 I thought of course it's 10 oh that's gonna we're gonna come up with 10 later but the significance of 10 is it's pretty amazing anyway so separated is missing off the list again and so is rested so add those in all right everything that we need to understand about God exists in those 10 actions separated and rested again are missing from the list Number one and done right there, God created. God moved, the spirit of God moved. The very next action is the spirit of God moving. God said, that was the word. God saw, what did he see? It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Over and over and over again, God saw, it's good. God saw, it's good. God saw, it's good. God separated. God called. Interestingly, um, he gave us that job too, naming, right? He made, he placed, he blessed. And finally, rested. But calling it good, this declaration of calling it good is so important. And I ask you to consider that in your study this last time because the world wants to say what's good. The world wants to decide what's good, what's wrong, what's evil. And it changes. Du jour, every day. Wake up tomorrow and somebody else is going to get canceled because the world decided they're not good. Right? And we live in a culture that resists someone else setting those standards. In our world, everything's relative, right? Everything revolves around your individual perception or better, feelings, right? But don't all people just love to decide what's morally good or morally evil on their own? And can't we see the absurdity in that, right? 
How do you, how does anyone know really what is good or what is evil? Without an absolute, culture just decides, right? The moral absolute of God said, God blessed, God declared has been exchanged for I say, I bless, I, I declare. No, I <laughs> declare what is good for me, it turns out, right? It's always focused on me. God has a lot to say about people who have lost their moral compass, whose conscience and their discernment has been so perverted by sin that they call evil good and good evil. And they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they end up worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And by creature, I namely mean themselves. They serve themselves. So as we enter into the study of Genesis, the book of beginnings, we see God laying the foundation for what he declares to be objectively good and objectively evil. And keep that in mind, he did not have to declare it good. But he set that precedent for us. This is good. This is what good is. I'm setting that precedent. I get to decide. This is God's voice. I decide. God decides what's good. God gives us those absolute standards, right? Remember what Jesus explained to the rich young ruler. He's asking him, you know, what do I need to do? And God lays it all out. Jesus lays it all out for him. And he, before he introduces it, he has this discussion with Jesus, he calls him good teacher. He says to the good teacher. And Jesus' response to him is interesting. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And that's why the commandments that he issues are good and right and consistent with the path of goodness and the path of righteousness because they are consistent with the character of God. All right? So as we move through, I want us to be really getting down to the most important thing. Number one, God created. And that God declared it was good. And remember that the creation account wasn't presented to a select or a solitary group of people. They were select, but they were God's chosen people, but they weren't solitary. They were part of the culture of the ancient Near East. And in that, there were several of these creation stories. They had to deal with all the other influences of their cultures around them, just like you have to deal with that today. So we're not really that different in that sense. And I want us to know above everything else, because I... One of the things we want so much as we come to Bible study and women's groups and things like this, and it's really hard to escape that desire, is what's in it for me? And we've talked about this before. We have to remove that from our wish list and our priorities, that that's not what we should be here about. But we read an account of Genesis, and we're like, yeah, day one, day two, yeah, da, 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 da. I, I need to feel good today. I need to fix my problems. So like, this isn't really helping. Where's my advice? Like, get back over to the Psalms where some warm, fuzzy, or some of those fun imprecatory Psalms are, right? <laughs> But listen, the context in which Jesus spoke these words, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, is in this conversation of the young man trying to find value and meaning in his life, ultimately, right? So I wanna show you some scripture to help you keep that in, in, in mind. In Jeremiah 32, we read, and I'm going to put this in the in King James because this is what I, how I learned it. I couldn't not say it this way. All Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and outstretched arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Nothing is too hard for thee. Now hang in there with me. You're like, how does this have to do with the good and the conversation over there? 
In Genesis 18, later on in the story, when you had your very first lesson, I had you read through the entire book of Genesis. You read the entire thing. You got to chapter 18, you read this part, and uh, we, we have this encounter, and the angel or the theophany, we'll talk about that later, is anything impossible for God? I will return you when the season comes around again, and Sarah will have a son. This old lady Sarah gets a son, and is anything impossible for God? Is the word there? Hang in there. The context of Jesus and his conversation with this rich young ruler, again, is him wanting identity and, and knowing how, the exact how to do it, to, to have meaning in his life and, and using the code christian or the religious words of um, getting to heaven, right? And he has like a lot of the right answers, but listen to what he says. Jesus tells him, I'm going to go ahead and just get my full context going here. Um, comes in the context of this rich young ruler coming to him, Luke 18. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said, then one thing you lack, sell all you have, distribute it to the poor, and you'll have a treasure in heaven and home and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for one to have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? They're being absurd, of course, because they're taking him very literally about the camel and the eye and all that. And they're being silly, like little children are. But he said, he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said, truly, I say to you, there was no one who has left house, wife, brothers, parent, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time than in the age and eternal to come. Nothing is impossible with God, he says. He said this to Mary when she was to give birth to the word. Nothing will be impossible to God. So Mary said, yes, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let this happen to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her in Luke chapter 1. And again, back to our passage here in Luke, those who heard this said, who then can be saved? He replied, what is impossible for mere humans is possible for God. Why? Do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And he set that precedent in Genesis chapter 1. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Nothing then is impossible. So let me bring you back to where you want. You want to leave and have hope. You want to leave and have answers. You want to leave and deal with your relationship issues. You want to leave and deal with your thought process. You want answers. You want hope. You want meaning. You will find that in Genesis when you get back to that basic, essential, and kind of the duh moment reality that we all know, right? Nothing is impossible. Why? Because he spoke the world into existence. What else is there? He has got you. Soup to nuts. <laughs> Aleph Tav. Aleph, uh, Alpha and Omega. A to Z. There's nothing impossible for God. And we learn that in Genesis 1. And we have this tendency to go to verses and chapters like this and say, yeah, but you understand my special story. Yeah, but I need some unique answers. You don't understand what I'm going through. My husband, you, you, if you only knew what I'm dealing with. 
Oh, but you don't know my family, what they're like and how terrible they are. Oh, you don't know what I'm dealing with at work. You don't know I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to fill your list. We have to get back to the essential truth and the reality of Genesis 1. Nothing's impossible to God. From the very beginning, God spoke. And it was so. And let, me, let me let you in on one thing. I want you to understand right now. When you read the Bible, when you really get to know the God of the universe who created you to the core of your DNA that actually contains the word spoken into your DNA to bring you into existence, you are also in relationship with the God who said that he sets up a guard over your heart and your mind. Nothing's impossible for God. And Genesis 1 brings us to that reality. So when you're looking at Genesis and you're yawning about the genealogies and, oh, my goodness gracious, day one, day two, he said, he said, he said, I want hope for my life. Please, please remove the blinders. And I submit to you, God, I will find that hope when I acknowledge you on my knees, on my face, that you are the creator of the universe and nothing is impossible for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God. We thank you. We praise you. Nothing is impossible for you. What a great reality that is. What a truth that transforms us. And Lord, our world is constantly being shaken. We'll wake up tomorrow with more news. Heck, we'll go out to our car with more news. We need that steadiness. That you guard our heart. You guard our mind. And that reminder, nothing is impossible. You spoke this world into existence. You could speak into my heart tonight, my life, my worries, my cares, my dreams, my hopes, my children, my husband, everything I'm dealing with, God, nothing is too hard for you. And we know it. We have faith in that. And we thank you that you've given us that reality in your word. So we come together right now in the name of Jesus to praise you and to thank you for that truth. And we do ask your blessing on our time as we continue now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.